Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Clyde Herring on August 23, 2021. Clyde describes her spiritual search from a Southern Baptist background in the interview. Her spiritual exploration led her to Islam and then ultimately to the Baha'i faith. When she became a Baha'i, her horizons widened that included a trip to Zimbabwe that had her come back with a new appreciation of her identity, which she describes in the interview. Recently, she started a support group where she lives called Made at Home that supports African-American mothers who have lost their sons. I started the interview by asking Clyde where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in Wilson, North Carolina. My family were Baptists, Southern Baptists. My mom was a primitive Baptist. We attended church regularly. My mom church was in the rural area so I didn't really go to her church a lot but we had to go to church every Sunday whether it was my mother's church or my aunt's church or a family member's church but I really enjoyed the Free Will Baptist Church and their sermons so mostly I attended the Free Will Baptist Church but there were times that I would go to Methodist AME and sometimes I would go to uh, Presbyterian. It didn't really matter what denomination, as long as we attended a church service. And I also attended summer school, church summer school, when school was out. That was a regular part of my summer as well. And I come from a family of a lot of ministers, male and female. So I grew up with a very, very rich religious life. And you carried that same religious life with you through grammar school, middle school, high school, into young adulthood? Yes. I left North Carolina after my senior year in high school, and I moved to New York. And I joined a church, a Baptist church in New York. But I didn't attend services every Sunday. I did sing in the choir at some point, but my religious life, once I moved to New York away from my immediate family, I was living with my sisters who were living in New York at the time. It wasn't as regular as growing up. Describe for us your spiritual journey that led you to the Baha'i faith. Well, like I said, once I moved to New York, and it was in the 60s, 1965, so as you know, there was lots of protests and huge civil rights movement, and I was very much engaged in that process, and I, I believe that was one of the reasons that I wasn't as attentive to church services because I was having some dilemma. I was having a dilemma in reference to injustice and racism that I grew up with in North Carolina. 
and God. There were some questions about that. So once I came to New York, I was very much, I guess you could say, I leaned a lot towards the philosophy of Malcolm X and also Martin Luther King, but mostly Malcolm X, was very much involved with the social astringencies of the time. I considered myself at that time, and I still think it's a good way of describing, I was a black militant. I was involved with an organization in Brooklyn. The name of the organization was Yuhura Sasa, which in Kiswahili meant freedom now. I had a daughter at that time, and she attended their school. It was one of the first independent black schools in New York State. But there was no religious affiliation with Yuhura Sasa. But there was some questioning about Jesus Christ. So I had some struggles with that because deeply rooted in my soul was this firm belief in Christianity and this firm belief in the prophethood of Jesus Christ. So I started to search a little bit outside of being involved with that organization. And I was also leaning at one point towards becoming a Muslim. Then I learned of the Baha'i faith. And how did that happen? Well, let me go back a little bit because the first time I heard about the Baha'i faith, I was still in high school. It was either 1964 or 1965. Ebony Magazine, which very popular magazine in the black community, I had an article on the Baha'i faith. I was flipping through Ebony Magazine and I saw this article on the Baha'i faith and it focused on uh, unity and justice and the oneness of humanity and the oneness of all the prophets of God. There was a 1963 Baha'i World Congress that was held in England, I'm not quite sure. And there were all these Baha'is of different ethnicities and different races together in this hall. And then they showed other Baha'is at a beach and they were going towards the water and they were holding hands. And I just thought, this is never going to happen. Not in America. And that was my first introduction, so to speak, of the Baha'i faith. In 1972, I was living in Brooklyn. I met a Baha'i. He said, I want to know what you are involved in. So I took him to Yuhura Sasa for one of their gatherings. At that gathering, he said, now that I see what you're involved in, I will let you know my belief. That was when he introduced me to the Baha'i faith. And what was your first reaction to the Baha'i faith in New York? Well, actually, it was a while before he took me to meet the community. He had just come back to the States. He was an international pioneer. And that international pioneer is someone who goes to other countries to help teach the Baha'i faith. He was coming from Australia, Samoa, Papua New Guinea. When I met him, he had lots to share with me about his time teaching the Baha'i faith in these places. Basically, he introduced me to the faith through photos and articles and just telling me stories about his travels and what it was like to teach the Baha'i faith in these various places. 
maybe a month or so before we went to the New York City Baha'i Center. And did you have that same reaction about, well, that couldn't happen here? I did. I was very skeptical, you know, about it all. I met him in March through a friend. A friend introduced me to him. And I met him in March. And to move a little further, in August of the same year, we got married. We got married at the New York City Baha'i Center. At that time, the Baha'i Center was very small. It was very an informal sort of wedding. We just announced it, I think, in the Baha'i newsletter. There were no invitations going out or anything. Several of my family members, my father was visiting from North Carolina. My father was there. My mother wasn't there because she was in Carolina. And my sisters were there. And other close friends I invited. When we arrived at the New York City Baha'i Center, it was packed with all these people with diverse backgrounds. So actually, that was the first time that I really got a chance to see the Baha'i community. There were prayers and we're standing in front of the audience. I looked out at this sea of diversity and all I felt was love. And at that moment, I turned to my husband because we had exchanged the Baha'i vows Verily will abide by the will of God. And then I turned to him and I said, I want to be a Baha'i. I became a Baha'i at that moment. What were your parents and your family's reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? They were shocked. (laughs) (laughs) They were very shocked because they had witnessed over the years my black militancy. That was one reason they were shocked. Oh my goodness, for years she didn't associate with people who were who were white. And now she's joining this religion where there are Iranians and Asians and white people. What is going on here? Also, they had the, the thought she just married this man that we all don't really know and now she's joining, quote unquote, his religion. But of course, my parents had to sign consent because with Baha'i marriage, before you marry, you must get consent of all living parents. So my father and my mom had signed for consent. But that was their first introduction to the Baha'i community as well. So what was your process that went from a black militant to accepting a more multi- racial, multicultural perspective? Well, I'll start from that heart connection. My husband's name was Omar Raphael, Omar Raphael Herring. So I'll just say Omar. When he shared the Baha'i faith with me for the first time, he said, Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, talks about the oneness, there's three onenesses, the oneness of humankind, the oneness of of religion and the unity, the importance of unity. Then he went on to share that the station of all the prophets and that Baha'is believe in all the prophets of God and you cannot be a Baha'i if you don't accept them all. And he also shared with me, which I grew up thinking 
that Christ was the one and only. That Moses, Krishna, Buddha, Prophet Muhammad, they were all wonderful philosophers, but they were not prophets of God. When he shared with me that Christ was not the one and only, and he explained the station of the Prophet Muhammad, the station of Moses, the station of Zoroaster, I too was shocked because I didn't know that. Then he started to share with me the writings of Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of the prophet of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'lláh. When I started to read the writings of Abdu'l-Bahá, I felt the spirit of Christ. I felt the same spirit that I could relate to with Christ. And Clyde, how close were you to becoming a Muslim before then? I really was considering it. So what was your reaction when you realized the Baha'i faith substantiated the prophethood of Muhammad? I was very pleased because it allowed me to know more about the station of Muhammad and actually enhance my knowledge of Jesus Christ as well. And it enhanced my knowledge of Moses and all the previous manifestations of God. I can't leave out the fact that when I started to study the Baha'i Faith and the writings of Shoghi Effendi, the great-grandson of Baha'u'llah, I started to read the Advent of Divine Justice. And in the Advent of Divine Justice, there is the writing on the most vital and challenging issue, focusing on the elimination of racial prejudice. And again, at first I thought, ah, never going to happen. This is America. (laughs) And then I started to read from the Advent of Divine Justice and the fact that if the issues of racial injustice in America is not solved, there will not be world peace. And also to really understand the spiritual destiny of people of African descent. At some point, I just thought to myself, my God, Everything that I've been looking for is in the Baha'i faith. And there's a prophet to go along with it. So that was sort of my confirmation. Wow, look at this. For years, I've been struggling with the issues of racial injustice and equality of men and women. And here it is in the Baha'i faith. So my eyes, literally my eyes were open on the spiritual and social because I thought that the elimination of racial prejudice and the injustice that we all experience in the world was a social problem. Once I started to investigate the Baha'i faith, I realized that it was, of course, the social problem, but a spiritual problem as well. Clyde, I understand that you worked at the Baha'i UN office after you became a Baha'i. How many years were you employed there, and what is the work of this Baha'i UN office? I started to work at the Baha'i International Community in 1985. And before then, I was working in the Gombat District in New York City as a computer manager. And then I started to work at the Baha'i International Community in 1985. When I first started to work there, I was assisting with the computers. At that time, they had a very old computer, PDP-11. 
<laughs> so I was managing that that system. And then later on, I was assigned as the central services coordinator. I was responsible for coordinating a lot of the work in the office, which had to do with the telephones and ordering supplies and making sure that all the equipment in the office ran smoothly so that the representatives to the United Nations had adequate supplies and whatever they needed to represent the Baha'i faith at the UN. And the Baha'i international community is uh, NGO, which is a non-governmental organization. They deal with issues pertaining to human rights and education of children, sustainable development, various focus. They have representatives who go to the UN to represent the ideas of the Baha'i faith, and they write statements pertaining to those ideas. And they have consultation with various other NGOs and other agencies. And it's located right across, not in the Secretariat of the United Nations building, but across the street in another building, which is not part of the UN. So my job was basically to make sure that when the representatives had to go to the UN to consult and meet with other NGOs and other agencies when they returned to the office, whatever supplies or whatever they needed was available to them. That was my responsibility as the Central Services Coordinator. Sometimes ambassadors and heads of state would come to the office and part of my responsibility was to make sure that they were properly received and that we had food for those kinds of events. It was a very diverse job description, I'll say. Clyde, you also worked at the New York City Baha'i Center. Where is the New York City Baha'i Center? It's located on 53 East 11th Street in New York City, in the part of New York City that is called The Village. And also, just to go back, I worked at the Baha'i International Community for 16 years. Mm-hmm. And I worked at the New York City Baha'i Center for, I think, about six years. I was office manager at the New York City Baha'i Center in close consultation and assisting the local spiritual assembly, which is a body of nine elected Baha'is that administer the affairs of the Baha'i community. It was a one-person office. I was the only person in the office, but I received my guidance from the local spiritual assembly in terms of my job description and what was required of me. And Clyde, I also understand that you had an opportunity to travel to Zimbabwe. What were the circumstances that took you there? I think it was probably 95, 96, when the Universal House of Justice, the Supreme Governing Body, the Baha'is of the world, requested that Baha'is of African descent visit Africa. Once I heard that request, I immediately decided to go to Zimbabwe I had a co-worker whose in-laws live in Zimbabwe. They were Persian Baha'is. They contacted them for me, and they said, sure, we would love to have her. And I was there for three weeks. When I first arrived, I arrived in Harare, 
and I stayed with a couple, Roy and Rena Steiner. I stayed with them, I think, for a week. And then I went to Bulawayo to stay with the Persian Sohaili family for two weeks. And I got a chance to really spend a lot of time at the Baha'i Center in Bulawayo and meet a lot of the indigenous Baha'is and gave public talks at the Baha'i Center on the Baha'i Faith. It was a wonderful, wonderful journey. I was also interviewed on one of the radio stations as a visiting African-American Baha'i from the United States. I asked a few of the women before I left Zimbabwe if they would give me a name, <laughs> an African name, and they chose the name Nomsa, which is Mzulu. It means mother of kindness. So what would you say, Clyde, you took away from that trip going to Zimbabwe? Before I arrived, I thought, oh, this is going to be wonderful. I'm going to go to this country and all the people look like me and I don't have to deal with racism. I had a very strong feeling I'm going home, going home. And then when I got there, surprisingly, all of the people that I would meet who were native to Zimbabwe, the first thing they would say before even saying hello is that you are an American. Hmm. <laughs> I went into the post office one day to get some stamps. And before I could even get to the window, the clerk said, you are an American. And then sometimes they would say, welcome back home, my African-American sister. So actually, when I returned home, I claimed for the first time in my life the fact that indeed I am an American. With everything that I found that was difficult and hard to deal with in America pertaining to the injustice and the racism that I would claim, yes, this is who I am. I am an American, and I will continue the struggle for the oneness of humanity and elimination of racial prejudice. So that has stayed with me over the years. Clyde, you had mentioned to me that you went on Baha'i pilgrimage. For those not familiar, what is that? The Baha'i World Center is located in Haifa, Israel. And this is where Baha'is go, their spiritual pilgrimage, a nine-day pilgrimage. As you may know, the Muslims go on pilgrimage to Mecca, and Christians go to Jerusalem. So Baha'is go to Haifa, Israel for nine days to visit the Holy Shrines, where Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, is buried, where the Bab was a forerunner of the Baha'i faith, is buried, where Abdu'l-Bahá, Baha'u'llah's son, is buried. So we have nine days to visit all the holy sites where Baha'u'llah and his holy family lived and died. So it's a very spiritual journey, and you meet Baha'is from all over the world who come for the nine-day pilgrimage. You mentioned earlier in the interview about oh, what a local spiritual assembly is, and you said that you actually served on a local spiritual assembly. Where was that? 
I currently live in Mount Vernon, New York. I came to Mount Vernon as what is considered in the Baha'i faith a home front pioneer. I was living in Brooklyn, and I moved to Mount Vernon, New York, which is part of Westchester County. You have to have at least nine Baha'is to form a local spiritual assembly, the governing body for the city that you live in. So I came here as a pioneer to help establish a local spiritual assembly in Mount Vernon. In Mount Vernon, I've been here about maybe 38, 39 years. Clyde, you're also a vocalist. You brought to my attention a couple of a cappella pieces that you had recorded on YouTube. What were your first musical influences growing up? As I mentioned earlier, my mother was a primitive Baptist, and in the primitive Baptist church and their form of worship, all the music is a cappella. So I guess you could say musically, my first influence was my mother's tongue, which was singing hymns, not accompanied by instruments. And of course, I was influenced by gospel and soul, R&B, and jazz. So it's just a mixture of all of those. And then once I became Baha'i, I was introduced to chanting in Arabic and I think there are probably some chants in Farsi. And I fell in love with that chanting style. So uh, that has a lot of influence as well now on the way that I arrange some of the Baha'i prayers. So it's a combination of quite a few arrangements. And the first piece you shared with me is a prayer for protection. Why did you choose this Baha'i prayer to set to a vocal arrangement? I've always loved that prayer. I mean, you know, it, it's a prayer revealed by the Bab, the forerunner of Baha'u'llah. It's supplicating God for protection from what is on my right, what is on my left, above my head, below my feet, and to every other side to which I am exposed. And I just have always been attracted to that prayer one morning during my morning meditation, the arrangement that you hear on the YouTube just came to me. And I think it was around the time when George Floyd was killed. Also, that prayer has always been a part of my go-to because I've always been concerned about my children and the protection that's necessary when they walk out into the world as African-Americans, my children, my grandchildren. So that prayer has always been a constant to protect them, to protect the community from what lies in front of me, behind me, above my head, on my right, on my left, and every other side to which I am exposed. So we'll play the selection, Clyde. Immeasurably Exalted art thou, O Lord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
protect us from what lieth in front of us and behind us, above our heads, on our right, on our left, below our feet. And every other side to which we are exposed. Verily, verily, thy protection over all things is unfailing. The Bob I'm speaking with Clyde Herring, a longtime Baha'i who has served on different institutions for the Baha'i faith, as well as traveled to Zimbabwe. And we had just listened to a vocal arrangement that she made a cappella from one of the Baha'i prayers, a prayer for protection, that was written by the Bab, the forerunner to Baha'u'llah in the Baha'i faith. Clyde, this next piece, a vocal arrangement you shared with me, and this one is a prayer referred to as the remover of difficulties. Why did you pick this one? And also, maybe you could describe a little bit how this vocal arrangement came into being for this prayer. Well, actually, this vocal arrangement wasn't my arrangement. It's from my dear friend, Joycelyn Jolly. I have to give her credit for that. Again, that's a prayer by the Bob. I guess some of us can say that we have struggled through a lot of difficulties in our lives. This is a prayer that I use during my meditation, and sometimes I may even say it 500 times, chant it 500 times, beseeching the Almighty to remove the difficulties that I face or that my community may face. So this prayer also is very dear to to my heart. Is there any remover of difficulties save God say praise be God he is God oh Remover 
of difficulties save God say praise be God he is God all I serve and all abide by his bidding. It's there remover of difficulties. Save God, say praise, be God, He is God, all I serve and all abide by his bidding. We had just heard a vocal arrangement by Clyde Herring, who is a long time Baha'i, and she had put a couple of prayers to vocal arrangement that you can find on YouTube. And we just listened to an arrangement from the prayer by the Bob called Remover of Difficulties. Clyde, you mentioned to me that you have children and grandchildren. Sounds like you have quite an extended family. Yes, I am one of seven. I'm the youngest of seven. I have two children, a son and a daughter. My son passed away last year. He was 43. My daughter lives in Atlanta. She's the oldest. My son had two daughters, Faith, who is 12, and Aliyah, who is eight years old. And I have lots of extended family, aunts and cousins and nieces and nephews and grandnieces and grandnephews. So I come from a very, very large extended family. What keeps you busy these days, Clyde? I'm retired now, and I live in Mount Vernon and a senior campus, actually, a senior campus, not just the senior housing, it's, it's the senior campus. And on this campus, it's run by and owned by uh, the Lutheran Church. And on this campus, there is a church. I think the church has been here for like 100 years. Where I live is called Wartburg. I think it was established in maybe 1863. But on the campus, there's assisted living. There's a nursing home. There's a inpatient and outpatient rehab. And before the pandemic, there was an adult daycare. People who live within the city of Mount Vernon or within Westchester, seniors would come for daycare during the day. I am a storyteller. And so before the pandemic, I would go to the rehab center and tell stories to the seniors. I did that for about five or six years before the pandemic. So now, since the pandemic, I spend a lot of time assisting and facilitating 
prayer calls by way of Zoom, presentations by way of Zoom, lots of Zooming, (laughs) (laughs) study classes by way of Zoom, spending time when I can with my granddaughters and being involved in my building. I'm one of the ambassadors on the floor that I live on. I mentioned earlier that my son passed away. So last year I have connected with three other women. They're all Baha'i women of African descent, and they have lost their sons as well. So we have created a support group for mothers and fathers, but mostly for mothers and for black mothers who have lost their children. Mm. And again, a lot of that was inspired by the killing of black men and women in this country. So we have a support group and we've opened it up to other mothers, regardless of their religious background. So we have Christian mothers who have joined us in the support group. We call our group Made It Home because we feel that our sons have all made it home. I'd like to just share a quote that resonates so much in my heart because it means a lot to me. It says, Baha'u'llah once compared the colored people to the black pupil of the eye, surrounded by the white. And this black pupil, you see the reflection of that which is before it. For me, this is what a glorious spiritual destiny for black people. You know, I always think about In my lifetime, I've been called quite a few things, but never the pupil of an eye and that amazing spiritual destiny. And that quote, Baha'u'llah says, that's surrounded by the white. So the white people have to support that. Can't do it alone as the pupil of the eye. Well, Clyde, thank you so much for telling us your life story and sharing your music and what you're doing these days. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Clyde Herring, a Baha'i and founder of a support group called Made at Home that supports African-American mothers who have lost their sons. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel a Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you go to the website baha'i.org. We can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Stop! 